Oh, you're going to direct Tomb Raider. That's what you're saying. I was going to say, once I found out that Crystal was going to get it, I was like, all right, so I've been a director here basically the whole time, eight years. I mean, it seems like Tomb Raider would be a pretty good fit for you, so... Mm, You'd think. Hi everybody, this is Soren Johnson and you're listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today we are talking to Amy Hennig, who is a creative director at Electronic Arts. Amy is best known for leading the design of the Legacy of Kane series at Crystal Dynamics and the Uncharted series at Naughty Dog. Yeah, I think it would be just like incredibly painful to like have to like recreate <laughs> the interview if something goes wrong yes i know because that's the problem is it's all in the moment right right and then if you want to have the same conversation again yeah. see, like i'm be... pushing you towards this point like man you made this point but i'm <laughs> not right. gonna like well i've had to do that in, put it in your hands like, like press things before oh, yeah. it's like, well now could you answer that again <laughs> right oh, remember man. to put the question in the answer and make it sound like you're hearing it for the first time it's amazing how like practice your spiel can become after you do it, you know, I know but I three hate, or four times. And then I you realize you're not thinking anymore, right? And it sounds like it. Yeah. That's the problem. So it's like whenever I do press, I haven't had to do it like for reels for a while now, but whenever I would do press, I would try to just sort of like clear my mind and start over again because yep. I hate how that sounds. And I hate when I watch my friends who I know how they're supposed to sound and talk. Mm-hmm. And I watch him do press, and it's like, who's that guy? That's what happened, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All of a sudden, this sort of presentational thing comes out. It's like, oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a side of me I didn't expect to know until... <laughs> yeah. No, it's a it's an unfortunate uh, side effect of the job, right? Yeah, yeah. We don't get to just sit in our little our corners and work on our stuff. When did you first start talking to press? Oh, man, it must have been 90... Six ninety seven took you know twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I don't know. I was always inclined to just kind of. I guess that was the first time. It must have been. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find it hard at first, or? I don't really remember. I mean, I think I must have because I'm kind of shy. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just sort of I've had to just work my shy muscle so that I get over it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but um, I. Um, yeah, I think you just sort of you just sort of learn to click in uh, when you. I'm fine when I have something to talk about. Yeah, do you know what I mean? The problem yeah. is, is when I have to enter a situation and I have to figure out how to interact with right human beings. And, <laughs> you know. What's the right thing for this situation? And That's right. What's this person interested in? And... Yeah, which sounds like it would be phony or something like it's sort of like oh no, I have to figure out how to navigate this, but it's just, it just doesn't yeah. come naturally sometimes. Yeah. No, it's, it's true. Like the, the press events can be pretty natural as long as like they're not totally out of source of what game you're making or yeah. like what they should be asking you for. And so much of it comes from whoever you're talking to, especially if it's press that you know. Mm-hmm. Then it's great because you just get to talk to them like you know your friend. Yeah. And then you know even if it's people that you don't know but they're good at you know doing the job, right? They can kind of keep the you know a conversation going and ask good questions. The worst are when it's people that are just like. They're not even making eye contact. And mm-hmm. every, they ask you a question. Every time you answer it, they just kind of go, 
Okay. Oh yeah, and where then, like you, you tell they have like the list of ten questions, and they literally just jump from question two to three. Not listening three, at all. Four, they're not following up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's just like you're carrying the whole thing if it's going to sound natural at all. Yeah. yeah. So don't do that here. <laughs> so if right. you go, if you go, all right, and next. <laughs> well, I got, I got blank pad. This <laughs> is only right. for like yes. if something if something comes up that I like want to make sure I don't forget. <laughs> oh, no, I know. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Cool. Well, where I'd like to start is what is the first video game that you remember? Uh, I don't know if this counts. Um, 1973 it would have been. Wow. Okay. Um, I think it was my fourth grade teacher uh-huh. who was a math teacher, but she was it was grade school, so she taught you know all uh-huh. the subjects. And she took us on a field trip to like a tech museum uh-huh. or something, maybe in San Jose, but it was in the Bay Area. And the only thing I remember about it was there was a teletype machine with Eliza on it. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I had never that. seen such a thing in right. my life. And so I, I, the, the reason I don't remember the rest of the museum is because I didn't like pay attention to the rest of it. I was completely focused on this teletype machine that was talking to me. Right. And uh, so I guess I would count that as the first Huh. Yeah, thing, that's, that's you know? interesting. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, that's often brought up as like one of the very first, I don't know what the right category is for it, but like... Kind of weird uses of an AI in a game or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it was very. You you know, I guess it's a therapist simulator. Yeah, yeah. Basically. So how did you yeah. ask? It asked you. Did you ask it? Wait, it asked you questions, or how did it work? Uh, yeah, but it kind of would just turn into a conversation, if I recall. I haven't seen it since I was nine, so right. my memory's probably foggy. But uh, you know, it would like turn and ask you things about your mother and things oh, like right. that. So it's kind of based on some form of therapy. Like whatever you said, it would, would kind of help to prompt yeah. the next question. Yeah, right? exactly. And like, you know, and obviously looking back, you know, it was pretty primitive. But, yep. but at the time, and of course, it was impressive too because it was this noisy machine spitting out reams of paper. I mean, it was literally a television. Oh, wow. It was not oh, a screen. Oh, yeah. I've, I've this is before, like, you know, we were looking at yeah. CRT screens. It was... Literally, so like, even just I'm, that part is kind of magical. Old, dude. When, <laughs> when I was going to college, one of my friends uh, was studying computer science and was all on punch cards. Mm-hmm. So that gives you an idea of wow. just how old I am. All right, so you were, you know, in fourth grade playing so. playing Eliza, and like, what did you think? I mean, how, why did it connect with you so much? I guess I had just not thought about the fact that we could interact with the computer that way mm-hmm. and that there could be, you know, primitive as it was, the idea of this sort of, uh, you know, apparent AI that was interacting. Um, uh, I mean, and obviously that's what I'm sort of saying. I'm, I'm, I'm couching it in the sense it's like I'm not even sure you would call it a video game because it's like, you know, very soon after that, I, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of course I went to the arcade all the time, but then going to the arcade meant it was like, Pong, right? Night Driver, mm-hmm. Sea Wolf, sure, primitive stuff, right? And uh, so those are my that was my first. Did those games appeal to you too? Oh yeah, no, yeah. no. Look, I my only incentive to do chores and mm-hmm. <laughs> was to earn <laughs> a, a, an allowance so that uh-huh. I could spend all of it every weekend at the um, miniature golf course where they had an arcade. Happy I didn't games. go outside, you know. I, I stayed inside and played the games. What was um, your What were your favorite ones then? Sea Wolf, I played over and over and over. So. I don't remember that one particularly. How did that one You're work? You're younger than I am. Evolve. So, um, so this has to look. This had to have been. It was seventies, mid, mm-hmm. mid to late seventies. So, um, what was cool about it is, it had a periscope. Okay. And so you could stick your face in the periscope, 
And it was kind of like air-sea battle, if you remember that on the Atari. Mm. <laughs> so much I, I do, I you know, I do remember an arcade game that had a periscope. So I probably saw it. Just you probably did. It was reason. probably in the corner, broken, right, rusting. Old. You know, um, yeah. My arcade games days would have been like 1980 to 83, like that period. So yeah, it was probably still around. But. I was yeah, probably so, and probably just dusted off occasionally. But um, but what was fascinating about it was it was kind of immersive. So you stuck your you know mm-hmm. your face in the periscope thing, and you could you could hold the little handles, and it pinged and all that stuff. And, and so, what did you see? Like I mean, so this the way I'm, I'm comparing it to Airsea Battle because basically it was like you saw the the the, the screen was, if I recall, like you know ships going by. I'm probably conflating this with Airsea Battle on the Atari, sure. but um, ships going by, and then you know you were trying to shoot. Kind of so you're a submarine. Yeah. And you're trying to shoot down the boat. Yeah, you had the oh, periscope. Oh, <laughs> I really did a good job of that one. So I mean, it didn't need the periscope to be yeah. a game. It was just made it more immersive. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, cheap, cheap way to do it at the time, right? Yeah. Like, well, and so that's the thing is like, so it was in the same period of time that not long after, anyway, that the Atari Twenty Six Hundred came out, mm-hmm. um, and my buddy and I would go to Walgreens because you know we couldn't afford. Uh-huh. I didn't think um, a uh, an Atari, and so we just drove them crazy. We would stand at the drugstore counter and, it, yeah. and just play combat over and over and over and over. Yeah. We, we treated it like it was an arcade, which I'm sure they didn't appreciate. Yeah, but um, was combat the one where you drove tanks around? Yeah, it was the it was the cartridge that came with the thing, yeah. and so it was all kinds of different tank games, basically. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then lo and behold, my my parents actually got one for us for Christmas, and so that. That set me were on you, my... Were you begging for it, or did they just Probably. watch what you were doing? Yeah. Probably. Uh-huh. Um, I kind of was a little obsessive as a kid. Yeah. Um, like, I'd get an idea in my head, and, like, my father couldn't, you know, he didn't necessarily, like, indulge me well, the way my mother did, um, but uh, I think she just saw that I had these interests, you yeah. know, and I was so kind of, like, passionate mm. about them that she, you know, she was the one who sat in the car and read magazines when she took my friend and I to the arcade for hours, right? Well, it's like, yeah. bless her, you Yeah, know? yeah. It's funny, you often don't, at least I don't, necessarily think back in time of these things you, you know, you're able to do as a kid and you realize yeah. your parent had to have been doing something. And it wasn't just time. because, I mean, I wasn't a spoiled kid at yeah. all and we weren't wealthy or anything and mm-hmm. I think that she saw me, you know, being interested and passionate about something that might have just seemed like some sort of, you know, like throwaway entertainment or something right. but you know it was the same period of time that like I always say you know I've said this other times so I'm repeating myself but like 1977 was like my seminal year basically okay. because that was the year uh, we got the Atari mm-hmm. Star Wars came out yep and uh, I discovered Dungeons and Dragons that's a pretty big three that's a big three <laughs> so it's sort of like 1977 made me yeah. The person I am. You know, yeah. it took me a while to kind of find my path back to... To that, yeah. Why, you know, all those things sort of like collided uh, in my life. But, um, and so, yeah, bless my mom. She would like, you know, drive me to the game store and sort of like, you know, hang out feeling probably very uncomfortable or, you know, wait in the car or drive yeah. me to D&D conventions and drop me off. And, yeah. no, and then when Star Wars came out, she drove us to yeah. the movies every single weekend and dropped us off so we could watch it every weekend over and over. And yeah. Over. No, that's, that's, I mean, that's a testament to her because, I mean, there's no way to see how that would 
pay off that she just saw you were she you know you were happy doing this right yeah so. and that it wasn't just some weird kind of like pesky indulgence i mean i would definitely obsess about things you know right um and so that's what i'm saying i'm sure i i'm sure i was annoying about the atari but she also probably saw me going to walgreens every day and didn't want her little daughter hanging out at the drugstore maybe anymore I don't yeah know. were this was this before parents were like afraid of D D? Or was oh, that just never would have been an issue in your family? No, no. I think, you know, I mean, look, we were, you know, Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area yep. family, you know, fairly progressive. I don't think it even occurred to them. But, yeah, I remember. I think I still even have them because I thought it was so hilarious. Our, you know, magazine articles coming out about, you know, how dangerous it was and how kids were going to go in the sewers and get killed by <laughs> Satanists and stuff like that. <laughs> That was a you great know. period. But and no, I mean, it, she, she dropped yeah. me off. You know, I was probably in yeah, high school age, but like, you know, she would drop me off at these, you know, two, three day conventions at a local hotel and they wouldn't see me. How for... did you get into that? That's, I mean, that's pretty, I mean, I, I played D&D with like a couple of my friends at school yeah. or something, but I never, yeah. I didn't even know that conventions existed. So. Yeah. Well, I think I was fortunate that they, there was a couple that were pretty local and so it would have been, I didn't have to travel far. It was just mm-hmm. kind of, you know, on the peninsula there in the Bay Area. I had some friends in school, and it wasn't like a big, crazy, like, D&D obsession. I didn't wear capes or anything, right. you know. Um, but uh, I was just fascinated by... Would you, when you went to a convention, like, would you typically go with, like, a couple of friends, or...? Yeah, well, it's like, the you know, the, the constant in this is my, my buddy Matt that I was okay. just saying, my best friend, mm-hmm. who we were all, we were into the same things, and yeah. so... We went to Star Wars together, you know. We I remember I was saying, you know, kind of relevant to what I'm working on now. I remember sitting in the theater in 1976, and I, God knows what we were seeing, probably something like Bad News Bears or, mm. you know, something like that, or um, some Streisand movie or something. I don't know. We went and watched everything. But um, that trailer came on for Star Wars in 76, and right. I remember looking at it, we looked at each other like, <laughs> Holy shit! What was that? What we just saw? Like we just like clunks. Like your whole world just changed in that yep. moment. Um, so he was there. We played D and D together. We were obsessed about video games together. Um, his parents were indulgent too, and so he actually like got uh, he had computers. So we started playing computer games together. You know, what did he, what did he have? Like, I'm not gonna remember the names of all of them because, but you know, no, I mean like literally, what computer did what he have? Do you remember? Did he, he have like had Apple a, or he a... had a TRS. 80, okay. I think, at first. Um, and so we were playing stuff like Ultima, if that makes sense. I think that's what it was. Or it was something similar to that. Right. I haven't thought about this in years. Hmm. Um, if I remember if Ultima would have been on the TRS. It was like it was something like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were a number I mean of we games. played tons of text adventures. That yeah. was kind of the big thing, too. Okay. Like, we were even trying to write them, but we weren't very good at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Um, yeah, it was something. Was it Wizardry? Would that make more sense? Yeah, Wizardry was. Yeah, maybe I'm just. I'm, I think I'm conflating those things. Yeah, um, I mean, Ultima was like the top-down, wander around and Wizardry. Well, it didn't have dungeons. And Wizard, but Wizardry was more like the. Um, well, the thing that became Bard's Tale. Right? Yeah, exactly. You're going through a wireframe dungeon. Yeah, and, right. Right. And a party of like mm-hmm. four guys. And whatever. I might also be getting confused too, because then he did get uh, an apple. Yeah, I forget which. That's probably where some of these games. Maybe are on, so. I think, the TRS-80 was. It was pretty really primitive, limited, yeah. really primitive, and so I think maybe I'm thinking about that. We were, so we would play. We'd sit in his room and we would play on the computer and all kinds of games. I remember sitting with him too because his family would always have kind of computers and they would you know rank them up. And so at one point they had the original Apple, I think, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we played Dark Castle on it. Mm-hmm. If you remember that game, and 
but we always wanted to play together, so we turned it into a co-op game. So so one of us would run the little dude around, and the other one uh, would control the arm. Oh well, right. Okay. So it's like you run, I'll throw the I'll throw the rock. Oh, that's cute. But um, so yeah, it was always an interest and kind of an obsession, just like just fascinated by just interactive entertainment, yeah. basically. And um, and you so you guys tried to write like like basic programs, yeah, like two like word parser kind yeah. of things, trying to do adventure games, but we never. We never got much farther than you know, turn left, open, open door. door yeah, you know. right. um, which uh, which text adventures did you like? Did you play the Infocom games or? Yeah, I think. I mean, I'm not going to remember all of their names, but I mean, we pretty much played all of them. It was mostly the inf- Infocom stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zork and. Um, Would you be able to make it through? Make it through those games or? I think so. Yeah, on yeah. your own, or did you use like the? They had there like was no hint books and they had hit help lines. But no, we weren't that clever. You guys is, just. Brute forced it through? Well, back then, and again, we're talking about the 70s and like early, early 80s, 80s yeah. right? Like, because um, I graduated high school in 82, so this was all... Before that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, so, the way you solved those things was just brute forcing it, going home and thinking about it, mm-hmm. um, talking to your friends at school. Yep. Maybe there were other resources, but we weren't clever enough. We weren't like online or anything yeah. like that. There was a kind of no concept of such a thing at that point. Yeah, I mean, most of those Zork games. I mean, you could sort of brute force it, but there's usually like one or two puzzles. Yeah, that were just like had these really weird solutions, uh-huh. and it's like kind of really unclear how people ever yeah. figure them out. But you know, um, no, I know, and I think it was just the fact that you know you just start talking about it with other people that are playing it, and yeah. Um, I'm sure we did, we got stuck on. So we were always like on to the next thing and the next thing. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. like our attention span was somewhat yeah. short anyway. But um, well, uh, let me ask about D and D a little bit. So you did you how like how did how did you play those games? Did you were you a dungeon master or did you like um, were you just yeah eventually like, like you know I mean I did both right um, but I started kind of gravitating to being the DM I think probably just because I'm a control freak but <laughs> you know but it's interesting because it's just like. Uh, where I ended up in my career, it's sort of like being a DM, right? Right. Um, sort of setting up stories and the constructs and, and, and you know. You'd be, you'd be surprised. I mean, I've been, I've been doing a number of these interviews now. You'd be surprised how many people were DMs. Yeah. <laughs> when, yeah. They were, when they were kids who ended up, you know, in the video games industry. Like, yeah. they, like they always seemed to like, yeah, I played, but then eventually I wanted to take it over. Yeah, exactly. You know? I mean, and, 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 and I... Be careful about using the word control freak because I think I'm really not. But I think that there is that sort of impulse of like you kind of your brain's jumping a couple steps ahead and you're just like, oh, just let me do that, you know? Like you know, so I feel like I've run into that in my life and career a lot, where I'm just sort of like I've got this idea and I just want to kind of run mm-hmm. with it. Um, did you did you design? Would you be the DM or would you also design like dungeons? And yeah, stories? no, that's what I mean. That's that's what I'm saying. Like I didn't actually use the modules, modules very much. We had some, right? Um, you know, we some especially some of those early ones. Um, but okay. mostly, I just I mean the part I loved, and actually, I think I did this more than play sometimes. Was right. making dungeons and like maps. literally like a graph paper, graph map paper. Stuff, yeah. I had the hex paper. Yep. You know, like I would ink these elaborate like. You know, world maps and yep. have it all somewhere. That's cool. I, I, should, I did the same thing. I should I drag mean, it all out sometimes. Like the best gift for me was just literally a giant pad of graph paper. And, yeah, you know, no, like, absolutely. <laughs> well, we were always inventing games too. I'm like, you actually are making me remember. I mean, you know those games you would play where it was sort of like you played the tank with the pencil on the paper. Do you, 
I was like, again, this is Mm-mm. like telling you about the game where we would hit a hoop with a stick, probably because you're so <laughs> You know, when we used to do that, kick the can down the alley. Back um, before electricity, you know. We yeah, these we had to make our own fun. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I'm sure other people have played this. I don't think we invented it, right. but, you know, you would draw little tanks. It was just a square with a, no, a muzzle, on, uh, you know, on it. And, uh-huh. and, um, uh, and then you'd put your pencil down, and then you had to kind of shoot. Like, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You would, like, so, would you cut out a, t- a like the tank would be a piece of paper? You just drew it out? on a piece of oh, paper, okay. right? And then you would, like, had to plant your pencil and then kind of give it a little shove from the eraser uh-huh. end to try to aim it uh-huh. to kind of shoot with the, the, the pencil lead. Okay. And it would draw on the paper and you'd uh-huh. be, like, trying to hit the other people's tanks. I could never oh, wow. thought about this until this moment. <laughs> this is why I'm describing it badly. We also went, we were such nerds. We went and bought a whole bunch of toy army men, mm-hmm. painted some of their helmets silver, some of them gold, and then actually created this entire game with rules where right. we could actually like have massive battles with the plastic army men in the house. So like, you know, in the family room, we'd be like, all right, this is the rules. You know, here's the guy with the, the minesweeper and he can do yeah. this. And here's the guy with the radio, therefore he can do this. And So you were making a little miniature war game. Yeah, yep. like so we were like already just in the mode of inventing worlds and rules and games, you know, mm. just with whatever we, we had on hand. Um, so now, so that's interesting because like you're talking about like kind of like game rule stuff. When you were doing D&D, you know, it's kind of like the split of like making the story part of it and mm-hmm. then making like the, yeah. you know, the kind of the rules and the, the you know, the you know, literally drawing out the, the hallways and yeah, the, yeah. placing the treasures and all that stuff like did you do a lot of stuff on the story side too, or you, yeah. you just like and what? So what type of stories would you tell? God, I don't even I mean, remember. Just, just I mean, I'm right? sure I was cribbing heavily from everything I was reading and, right. and you know, or other modules and things like that. I mean, so much. It was pretty. I don't remember it being very elaborate plot wise. It mm-hmm. was more about kind of digging into the characters and who they were, and which I guess I'm still fucking doing. Um, uh, and. Uh, uh, I'm kind of more about the moment to moment, you know, what's the story of this little dungeon and, you know, where you're going to, you know, encounter around the next corner. But it's funny, like, I, I think I did enjoy the planning of it almost more than the playing of it. And mm-hmm. sometimes we never got around to playing to it. To playing it, sure, yeah. And it was just, I would still sit at the card table in my bedroom and just work on these maps. And it was just kind of like, you know, that was, that was the purest joy of the thing was, was just getting into that zone and flow and creating this stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's funny because it's like then you you know you stray away from that stuff. You get busy with school yeah. and life and college, and there's a lot of other things to worry about. Things that you should be focused on instead of sitting in your room with your nose against a piece of graph paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but then sort of weirdly and inevitably, like sort of life brings you back to the things that you loved, and, right. but in some circuitous way that you never could have planned. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just about to ask, like at the time. You know, you're 16 or whatever, and you're you know kind of doing these things, yeah. you know, off to the side, yeah. you know, where you're you come up with the rules and you're doing little D camp modules. Like, did you think at all about like there are people who do the you know like these D and D books come from someplace, these mm-hmm. video game, these arcade games come from someplace. The people who are making you know Infogom is a company. There's people who work for them. Like, did you think about that at all? 
Weirdly, I don't think so. You know, and even though I was meeting some of these people, especially in the you know role playing the conventions, yeah, you know, yeah, okay. I could I would meet people that you know were were making games or, yep. or writing games. And actually, I met a guy once who was like an older guy, a slightly older guy than me. Obviously, because I was in high school. Uh-huh. Who we started trying to actually work on a game together remotely, mm. you know, just because okay. we kind of had this idea that we shared, and so, but it, in, in terms of going, why this is going to be my career? No, right. I mean, you know, it's sort of like maybe kids just don't think like that, or yep. I certainly didn't. I think I was always so focused on the very next thing in front of me mm-hmm. that I was never a good long range planner. And matter of fact, now that I think about it, I probably still am not. Mm. It's worked out okay. Um, <laughs> maybe not my finances. I should probably go check on that to see if I'm ready to retire at some point. But I just like I'm always always completely single mindedly focused on the next thing in front of me. So when you were in high school, like you just weren't thinking about a career at all. Is that be the no, best way to put it? I had probably, but you know, I it's always the next thing. What's the next thing I have to do? Well, I have to take the LSATs. You know, what's the next yeah. or the, whatever the PSATs or whatever it was. I forget. But you didn't have a dream per se of like what you wanted to do. I don't know that I would have been able to verbalize it or like, or maybe I was framing it around what I thought was uh, possible or rational or something. Right. So like, I mean, cause I was always hugely into photography, you know, okay. I actually had my own dark room. I cobbled together and I would like, you know, black out all the windows and oh, wow. develop film and pictures and stuff. And when I was a little kid, I had an old wind up Bolex eight millimeter movie camera. That was my grandparents. Um, and we would make little eight millimeter movies and try to click only you know one frame at a time and make animation and things like that. Right. And um, uh, so I had all these passions, mm-hmm. and so in some sort of abstract way, maybe I thought, and I was always writing and stuff. Like mm-hmm. Maybe I thought, okay, I'll be a writer or I'll be a photographer or, but it just was like I don't think it seemed like. What would you What would you write during this period? Just dumb old stories. I mean, it was like, just like you write short stories, like fiction. Yeah, yeah. You know? Some, some. It kind of was all influenced by whatever I was reading or studying at the time. So mm-hmm. when I was into you know fantasy novels and D and D, it was you know kind of sword and sorcery kind of stuff that was probably right. again probably heavily cribbed from the stuff I was reading. Um, and I would just kind of write you know pencil and stuff like that. Just kind of long longhand. Um, I mean, of course, when you're really little, I wrote stories about little animals that could talk. I was obsessed with Narnia, so I wrote those kinds oh, cool. of stories. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's just kind of like trying to work your story muscle based on what it is that, whatever it is that you're inspiring you. Yep. And then I was an English major when I finally went to college. But see, that's the thing. You kind of go, okay, well, what's a reasonable thing for me to do? Right. You know, okay, take the SATs, get into college. Which college? I want to study English. It's like, but it wasn't like this long range plan of, because eventually I will be a... Yeah. I don't know. I guess I probably would have said, I'm going to be a writer. Because I, yeah. I mean, that at least fill in that blank, but right. I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. I mean, at least being a writer is like a thing, right? <laughs> you know? Like, you could look around you and see, like... Right. I mean, maybe I don't know a lot of writers, but they probably exist as opposed to game designer. Yeah, is, well, then that was... There was certainly... There were no schools. There was yeah. no concept. I didn't think about the fact that there were game companies and people that worked there and how did they get there. It was just... I don't know. Maybe my head was a little in the clouds, like, in terms of... Again, the planning thing. Mm-hmm. I think I just... I would be very passionate about the thing I was working on, and that would usually lead me to something else that, that I would become very passionate about. And I guess because I was so focused and trying to do... Kind of been a little bit of a perfectionist a lot of my life, and so because I was trying to make that thing very good, sometimes those things would draw 
other people's attention who would then you know offer me opportunities do you know what i mean yeah. like well i mean with i mean you're describing all these different things you know creative things you were doing you must have been a very, you must have seemed like a very creative kid you know so i guess I mean, so it's like, been I hard mean, not to notice that you know if you got your dark room and you're doing your writing you're making these games you're going to yeah. conventions and like so on it and was so never very outward facing or like I don't know, self-promotional is the wrong way to put it. But you know right. what I mean? It well, was, you were like a performer. I was like, just, you're not like you were the kid who was like great at piano or something. So everyone saw that. No, so. and I wasn't, I don't even know how much I shared. I was just kind of like, I just did this stuff. And of course, you know, if it was natural for people to be aware of it, they would be. But I wasn't like, I wasn't a show off. I wasn't like going, mm-hmm. hey, look at my thing. Look at my Were stuff. there some teachers, were, like, were there some teachers then, like in high school who did notice this or like? Yeah, but I think that they noticed, the ones that I think took notice, um, Maybe notice the fact that I was thoughtful and and you know tried to be articulate and so it was generally like English teachers yep. that would take me under their wing, um, and you know one of whom in my senior year was great because he didn't teach all the typical books that you would teach. He was sort of like yeah screw all screw all that you know whatever's on the syllabus or whatever's on the expected reading list. He had us reading like. The New Yorker and Atlantic Monthly mm-hmm. and teaching and, and, and books um, that were, you know, f- fic- nonfiction. Like he had us read The True Believer. Mm. He was, I think he was sort of trying to make sure we thought for ourselves. Okay. And teaching us rhetorical argument mm-hmm. um, so that, you know, when we would, we had to compose our thoughts or, you know, talk about a certain topic. Um that we had to really be able to, you know, support it and walk through it. It wasn't just some airy high school paper. Matter of fact, I've always gotten these great grades. I'd always gotten A's on everything, and that's kind of like, you know, all my classmates were like, oh, yeah, you're that you're that person who always you know, gets mm-hmm. A's on their papers. My first paper I got back from this guy, he gave me a D. Mm-hmm. And it was like, holy shit, <laughs> right? right? And basically it was because even though... I was being clear and articulate and and flowery or whatever I might have been being. He, you know, he called me out on the fact that I wasn't necessarily thinking. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And it was a paper about, and it was about something like about something historical. And if I thought about it a few minutes, I can probably remember, but. Like it was, it was not a very disciplined way of looking at something. It was about World War Two or something like mm. that, and, and and you were and, just repeating stuff, basically. Or I feel like I remember one. I mean, I, I remember his comments better than I remember my paper. And one of his comments was something like, uh, "This thinking is more at home in a cloister than in a critical argument or something like that." A critical mm. paper. And this is the paper I got a D on. And I talked to him afterwards and said, well, will you let me rewrite it? And he said, yeah. And then I rewrote it and and paying attention to what he told me, which is not right what I believe. Because it wasn't that I wrote something he disagreed with. I wrote something that was sort of, I didn't support. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a naive way of looking at a very hard topic. And uh, because I think it was something about... You know, Nazis and the Holocaust and World War II. It was something heavy. Yeah. And, um... And he became one of my my biggest mentors in terms of actually being able to organize your thoughts, support them, present them yeah. as a, a basically critical thinking. Yeah. 
and so I'm so grateful for him yeah. for that rather than just you know us reading the classics yeah. and writing but, some surface papers. It seems like it's often the English teachers that are like the ones who yeah you know smart kids who you know need some help you know in that time of life like often are the ones that really make the big difference right um, right like it seems like I can hear that a lot yeah especially um, probably in our circles right yeah yeah um so so yeah i mean that's why why i moved from thing to thing um because after i studied english lit i got my degree uh i was getting a little bit i'm bored isn't the right word but a little full of it by the end of my four years at berkeley and i think it was because all right, well, um, hold, on, hold on one second yeah. so, all right so okay. this was in high the teacher you're talking about yes, was in high school. School. that was and then you you it was time to go to college and yeah. you you made a decision that you thought you wanted to be in, you know, you wanted to get into English. Yeah. And you wanted to go to and Berkeley too. Right. Were you in the Bay Area? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I grew up uh, on, the, on the peninsula. Okay. Just south of San Francisco. Did you kind of always want to go to Berkeley? Is that? There was. <laughs> I mean, it's again, it's the always want thing. Like I don't know what I wanted. I think I just did the next thing. But um, I think I wanted to go to a school that had some history. Yeah. Um. And I wanted to. I didn't want to get too far away from my family because uh, my. Uh, Wait, did you say are they on the peninsula? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, my sister. Um, I had a little niece and uh, then a little nephew, and it's like the last thing I wanted to do was be halfway across the country because I was, you know, really invested in them. Mm-hmm. Um, I had family in Berkeley, so a lot of things just made sense. Yep. Um, and it was an excellent school, and I got into yep. it. I think I applied to UCLA and didn't get in. I don't remember, but uh, Berkeley. And then I was replying to some liberal arts colleges, like up in, I think, Oregon or Washington. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I just, I liked, I liked the feel of Berkeley, you know? Sure, yeah. Okay. And so you went there to study English or literature? Or... Yeah, English lit. And, um, and of course, it's nice because when you're doing a you know, a liberal arts degree, you get that whole kind of breadth of Western civilization, history, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was a good, it was a good time. Um, and again, I think I was sort of latched onto that critical thinking space about, you know, and connecting that with authors that I was falling in love with, like T.S. Eliot and James Joyce. I really liked the modern era stuff. Mm. Um, I love James Joyce. I haven't been able to get through Finnegan's Wake, so no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I have it on my shelf, and I have two books about how to read it. <laughs> so one of these days, <laughs> I've tried. And actually, I mean, musically, I love it. Do you know what I mean? Okay. But you like, flip through it. You, you, I, you flip through it, and you f- see passages you like or whatever. And... Well, just the fact that it's like, I mean, obviously he kept just deconstructing and deconstructing things, you know. And I loved, I loved Ulysses, right? Mm-hmm. There, there are parts of Ulysses that are sort of veering in Finnegan's Wake territory, yeah. but the fact that it was um, so kind of invited the reader in to interpret what he's doing, because of course it was a little abstruse, right? Yeah. And um, same thing I actually liked about you know modern poets in general um, was the fact that it wasn't just you know pretty words that was like it required some work from you yeah, um, sure. and not only just work to get what they meant but work to kind of uh, you know invest the poem with meaning that you were bringing from your own mind you know mm-hmm. uh, it was interesting because like the farther I got into studying that stuff it got more and more navel gazy and um, more about like semiotics and I was just kind of like oh kill me now I just yeah. gotta finish and get my degree um, 
Because I stopped enjoying that level of deconstruction. It just seemed really masturbatory to me. Right. And so at that point, I was actually starting to take some film classes, whatever they had at Berkeley, which wasn't much. And I was starting to get into the idea of being a filmmaker, mm-hmm. whatever I thought that meant. And then um, I actually like, was a PA on a film that, you know, kind of an independent film was shooting. And I just kind of sparked the interest in me. Mm-hmm. And then so after... What kind of I mean, like what kind of films would you have wanted to that really spoke to you? Ironically, I wanted to make things like Indiana Jones and Star Wars. Okay, right? well, <laughs> I guess that's probably should be a shock. But uh, yeah, I mean, this I wanted to make the kind of films that I loved. I mean, uh-huh. I'm sure I went through a period where I was a little bit more up my own ass about thinking I was going to do something artsy, you know. Right. But and look, I mean, so much of that stuff you're bombarded with at school. You know, you're not talking about films like that. But yeah, right. I would get the most interested when we're talking about sort of classic films and not the experimental ones you know mm-hmm. uh, was there an issue like among like your professors like did they not want to talk about those type of films like did you ever feel like you were I like I, kinda, I, like, I feel like you like you were worried you were worried about a type of film that they didn't necessarily value I don't think I even talked about it that much you okay. know what I mean like because obviously we studied a lot of things I mean we studied Hitchcock and you yep. know all that stuff and it's all in the same ballpark right mm-hmm. um but if you're trying to talk about something that was more recent and more kind of, you know, lighthearted entertainment genre stuff, probably, I mean, it wasn't like anybody would have turned their nose up, but it was just not the topic at hand, right? Yeah. So I went to San Francisco State for a couple of years and I was working on my master's in film theory and production. Okay. Um, and this is, again, the old days, right? I mean, we're actually cutting film and taping it back together and, yeah. you know, loading up film magazines and dark bags and stuff like that. There was nothing digital. Um, and it was funny because, you know, I really wanted to be a cinematographer. I'd been into photography all my life. And I really got the message that that's not for women. Really? Yeah. This is in San Francisco, right? Wow. Um, How, well, I mean, that's a over, you know, that's like an abstract statement. What did that mean concretely? Like, how did you get that message? Well, from a male professor, mm-hmm. you know, who was teaching us cinematography and, you know, filmmaking in general. And I think maybe he was asking us what we wanted to do when I said mm-hmm. that. And, you know, as part of his lecture also, he just sort of talked about how there was literally one woman. Thankfully, this has changed. Not much, but it's right. changed. There's only one woman in the ASC. Mm-hmm. And that she had gotten in there kind of as a fluke. Almost like her mentor, her male mentor, had tricked the membership into admitting her. Wow. Um, and that's why she was there. But she was an exception, so don't get your hopes up. So he was literally telling you yeah. that there was no place for women in the Yeah, to base, And look, I'm sure he thought he was trying to be kind. He's trying to protect you. To basically. say, like, mm, yeah. you sure you wouldn't like to do something else? Because... This is going to break your heart. That's that'll be my best interpretation of what he was doing, sure. right? Sure. I mean, did you think he thought you were capable of it? Uh, I don't know. I don't remember well enough. But I mean, at the time, I just I felt like the message was that's a hard job. It's a man's job because if it was very physical. The cameras are heavy. The equipment's mm-hmm. heavy. All that kind of stuff. And um, and that if you're talking about working in a Hollywood, you know, get ready to be disappointed. Environment, right? Uh, yeah. And so I was sort of like kind of walking around with that message. At the same time, I was also taking other classes. I was uh, studying animation. I wasn't very good at traditional animation because I'm not that good of a hand artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got uh, chosen for this little pilot program uh, with like maybe five other people. 
to uh, they the the university bought one SGI computer. Okay. Had it in kind of this little narrow weird closet, um, and had Wavefront on it. Mm-hmm. And the reason there were only five or six people in the program is because. If you had too many, I mean, there was not enough equipment. There was right. the one computer. And we all, I mean, we literally be like, you'd sign up and go, I will be at midnight. From this hours to this yeah, hours, yeah. Because it was like there wasn't enough time on this thing oh. to be able to sit and learn Wavefront. Mm-hmm. So all of this was happening. I was studying film and getting really interested in it. I'd studied literature and story and had been interested in that. Studying animation and then the computer. Um, I wasn't excelling at any of it. I think I was just absorbing a lot of stuff. And then, uh, and then I stumbled into an opportunity to work on a game. And I stumbled into it because I was desperate to pay for film school. Mm. Like, it was really expensive. And, you know, because, again, all the materials, you had to pay for all that stuff. And um, so I was taking any any odd job I could get, basically. And they were all, thankfully, sort of computer-related at that point. And, mm. again, this is interesting because, again, you... Your, your life takes you places out of necessity that turn out to be the very thing that was the right thing yeah. to do, right? And so I had I was doing tons of uh, page layout, word processing, of course. Um, I was doing technical illustration for textbooks and uh, computer and like manuals and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was doing software testing for <laughs> uh, ill-fated machine. It was a, a, a printer that printed slides. For slide presentations, was before there was a PowerPoint, or right? Wow. A PowerPoint that you know you could plug in and you know go to the thing. So you actually people were printing the, the slides on slides. Yeah. So that mean I mean I had to test every piece of software out there, um, but this was all just to make money, right? And then uh, so I stumbled into this opportunity um, to do the basically the art animation and design, collaborate on the design uh, on an Atari seven eight hundred game. Oh, and at, oh. at the time, I was just like, it was just like this one programmer who lived down in San Jose. Sort of stumbled upon a chance to work on a 7800 game. Yeah, right. And at the time, I was just like, well, that's great. How much does it pay? You, you so know. you met a developer or programmer so, or something, basically? Or? I was a friend from high school. And so this was probably seven years after high school, maybe six. And uh, I ran into him at a garage sale, of all things. And we were catching up, and yeah, what are you doing? What are you doing? We filled each other in, and he told me that he was like, when he heard what I was working on, he was like, "Hey, <laughs> would you be interested in this?" And he uh-huh. was going, he was going to be doing the art and animation for this game that his buddy was working on. His buddy, they were like friends from Eagle Scouts or something. Uh-huh. But my friend said, "I have to leave. I'm going to Texas, and I'm not able to do it." So I've left him in the lurch. Do you think that's something you could do? Mm. And of course, I was like, you know, had I done it before? No, but I wanted the money. Sure, I can do that, right? Yeah. And and I'm just looking was, at it like, how am I going to pay the rent? What was the job exactly? You would be making art so for... It was to do everything but the programming, basically. Okay. Um, and, and obviously, he, the programmer and I were collaborating on the design, but mm-hmm. it was a side-scrolling adventure for the Atari 7800. Okay. Did, did he work for Atari? Was he was an independent contractor, independent and contractor. so he subcontracted me to do the art, animation, and design. Um, okay. 
they didn't pay much at the end of the day, but... Um, but I guess, sorry, what I was asking, was this an Atari game? But yeah. They, they were publishing this game? Yes, they would be publishing it. Okay. They had a contract with him, and that's how they worked. They had all these little independent... All over the place, yeah. Little independent developers. It was like one or two people, maybe. Right. Um, usually one person. Okay. Um, making these things. And so... Uh, so I signed on with him, and it was in a company. We worked in an alcove off of his kitchen in San Jose. Mm-hmm. I would drive down there. Um, but, of course, there was, like, there was no tools. I had to just figure the whole thing out, right? And so right. I kind of said, sure, I can do that. And went, okay, I'm going to figure out how to do that, right? right? So I started, like, buying all the game magazines and, like, getting mm-hmm. Nintendo Power and looking at it with, like, a loop, you know, and, like, right. studying how people were making sprites. Right. So you were, making, you were going to make 2D art. Oh yeah, no, okay. dude. Yeah. <laughs> Nineteen eighty-eight, eighty-nine. Yeah. Okay. Right? Okay. So um, it was. Uh, what program would you use to make that? So, anything I get my hands on, and most of it I pirated. To be completely honest, I mean, once I started making money with this thing, then mm-hmm. I'd go buy it. Yeah, yeah. But like, I didn't have a choice initially, right? Yeah. So I was doing everything on a Mac, and then I he. He loaned me an Atari ST okay. so I could get the art onto there. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, I think I was recreating it. I don't even remember. It was I didn't have like a good process because there was no there was no pipeline. There was no real tools. I had a Mac and a that I was doing all this other work on, mm-hmm. right? Technical illustration and stuff. So I was doing all the art in this program called, called Graphist Paint, which was sort of a precursor to Photoshop. Okay, um, and and then animating, I didn't have an animation program, so I had like Macromedia Director, which I could make pages in. Yep. And so I would like trying to figure out the animation that way, and then I would recreate it on the Atari ST because there was I had nothing other than the program that I made a page. I had a page of graphics, you know, and I had to make sure it was all kind of crammed in there. But it was crazy. So it's like, I mean, there wasn't much in the way of palettes. I think the machine had all told like two hundred fifty six colors, and right. any sprite could use three of them at a time because your other mm. four colors technically but the fourth was transparent right okay so um, and uh, so I had to make all the graphics for the game all the tiles all the characters all the this animations a, so this was a side-scrolling game side-scrolling like a platformer or like a yeah. uh, okay platformer yeah so yeah it was I mean think about like the NES games of the time right, right. you know sort of side-scroller you know shoot, punch run, jump kind of okay. thing okay um, what was the game called? It never actually came out. Oh, okay. But weirdly, it was called Electrocop, but it was not the Lynx version. Atari wanted a 7800 version of Electrocop, but they didn't care it was the same one because they actually had them working on, I think, that at the same time. Okay. They just liked the name. Okay. So they're like, make something called Electrocop. Some Electrocop, yeah. So we made this weird. Extending our IP. (laughs) Exactly. So we made this weird thing that was sort of like this. It was kind of Robocop y, but it was just this weird, trippy thing. Mm-hmm. Partly because I was cribbing from all these other games and trying to go like, well, how do they do that? How do they do that? So it's sort of like, you know, we had thugs and evil doctors and, you know, it was just sort of like, it didn't make a lot of sense. Right. But. you But you guys had kind of freedom to do whatever you wanted to, though? Yeah. And actually, it was really good. I mean, I mean, easy for me to say now. Nobody <laughs> can check me up on that. Yeah. But like, I was really keen to try to figure out, we both were, how to figure out how to push the hardware because I was seeing you know he was getting um, I don't know discs or you know co- copies of the other games that were being worked at the time mm-hmm. or had just come out and they were horrible right yeah. 
partly because, again, I probably one person working on them, probably a programmer, they didn't have an art background, yeah. right? And so we were trying to think, like, well, how can we really utilize the palettes we have broken into these sprites so that we can kind of get the illusion of a lot more artistic detail than is really in there? Mm-hmm. And it looked pretty good. Um, it looked more like uh, a Nintendo game, you know, mm-hmm. like a good Nintendo game than it looked like a uh, the Atari games at the time. Yeah. Um, were you? I should have asked this earlier. Were you? Were you still playing games throughout this whole period, college and I grad school? And... Stopped. I'm trying to think what the years would be. So I played them through high school. Mm-hmm. Kind of started petering off, petering off. But you know, we would go to the arcade, and you know, mm-hmm. I loved, for instance, the the Vector Star Wars game. Yep, sure. Um, Tempest. I mean, I loved all those things, mm-hmm. but I didn't go as often. I had a lot of other stuff going on. Right. Um, but you tried it like a Nintendo when it came out. So that's this is the interesting thing. I sort of rediscovered it when my sister had her kids, uh-huh. and so I believe we bought an NES uh-huh. for them, right? And then I started playing and it you with see them, them. You'd play it, and, yeah. yeah. And it wasn't. I mean, it, it wasn't like so much time had passed that I was like, I'm rediscovering this thing I had right. abandoned. But it was like I had a few years there, basically, you know, like a couple years where I sort of like it just it was off my radar a little yep. bit. And so I started playing those games with them and then kind of getting into it. And uh, uh, and then interestingly stumbled into this thing that made it even more relevant to me. So then we got, you know, then we bought every machine that came out, you know, and I was really studying everything. So mm-hmm. it became kind of a, something I could actually share with uh, my niece and nephew, which was fun. Yeah. Um, again, still mostly thinking about, you know, how I was getting paid because, you know, had rent and, 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 you know, school bills and all that right. kind of stuff. So presumably some of those Nintendo, you know, presumably like Super Mario or whatever, probably huge, influenced huge you influence. what you were, you were trying to do here. Yeah, yeah. And look, I mean, if you... I wish I had it with me to show you. Actually, I have my old portfolio that has all this stuff in it. But, mm. um, uh, you know, it looks like a bit of Double Dragon here, a little bit of, you know, Metroid here. Yeah. I mean, it was just like... It was. I was studying from the masters for sure. You know what I mean. Yeah. A little bit of teenage mutant ninja turtle action kind of going on. There, which <laughs> I don't know, but there was a whole bunch of games we were looking at at the time. Yeah. Um, so what happened? So what happened to it then? So we pretty much had it done, and it was kind of like my work was done. It was fascinating too. I was telling a friend the other day, like the way because again there was no tools, and so the way we had to like do level layout. I did it all in pencil on graph paper, mm-hmm. and then I identified. How each uh, tile in my page of graphics, what what number it had in right. hexadecimal, and then I would go, okay, so column one of our side scroller is, and I would read out a column of hexadecimal numbers. Yeah. Column two is, boom, 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 and that's how we built the level. Then we'd like hopefully write it in right, and then we'd play it and like, holy shit, there it, it is. is. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot your question. I was just remembering that. Uh, oh, I guess what happened to the game? I mean, you said it never oh, came right. out. Oh, right. So, so it was in a bug testing phase. Um, Atari 7800 was sort of at yeah. the tail end of its thing. Um, so it's like they started it, and then they realized that... Yeah, so was... my part was done, mm-hmm. and the programmer just needed to finish it, and I think he kind of went through a personal crisis and moved to Modesto and never finished it. Yeah. Um, and because it was at the tail end, it was just sort of like, I think everybody just sort of parted ways. Yeah. So it was a year of work, but... I mean, you, you got paid for it. But. I got paid for it, and but what it let me do is I was able to then 
by by now, because I'd sort of started paying attention to what was going on in the game industry, mm-hmm. I like I had my little portfolio such yep. as it was, um, and I was like, yeah, screw this film school stuff. Right. I dropped out mm. because I realized there was actually a much more interesting frontier in games right. that had just been a little bit off my radar, where it seemed like... How much was it the... I mean... This was 1991. Right, yeah. right. I mean, how much was this the fact that you'd be kind of been told that there may not be a place for you or what you want to do? Weirdly, I think, yeah. Like, maybe if I'd stayed with it and said, yeah, screw you, I'm going to show, right. show you that you're wrong and, and I'm going to move to L.A. and figure it out, who knows, and what I might have done, right? right. I don't know. But um, even looking around, though, the people that were the sort of the success stories coming out of the program, they were doing cool stuff, but it was sort of small and local. And, mm. and so it didn't give me a lot of hope that I was ever going to get to make the kinds of things that I loved. Uh-huh. Um, so the, the video games industry was appealing because... Because, first of all, I felt like that it wasn't as ossified in terms of rules and hierarchy. Right. Or gatekeepers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because it's sort of like, you know, uh, yeah, there was no kind of creative rule set. I mean, in mm-hmm. film, there's a certain way you did things. And um, this felt like... You know, as much as there would be room to be maybe experimental or push, you know, on the technology of film or something. I mean, this was kind of before any of that revolution mm. happened. So it was kind of like the message was, is, here's how it's done. Here's how it's been done. Learn the basics. Now go do it. Right. right. And to look at an industry where it was about you have to figure it out from the seat of your pants. Yeah. We don't quite know what we're doing yet. The hardware keeps changing. Mm-hmm. Now it's something new. And then you would look at this thing where it's like, okay, I have a page of graphics, 256 colors, three colors per sprite. And you're just like, well, that's not going to be true forever. Yep. Right? And the idea that, you know, genre and creativity and opportunity seemed like, you know, know, it's like go west, right? Yeah, sure. It it felt like like a pioneering medium, which was far more interesting um, than, than what I saw in front of me. Yeah, And so, again, I mean, the fact that that all sort of happened partly because, of course, my life was leading me in a direction that made me prepared for it, but it was just the absolute serendipity of being in the right place at the right time sure. with meeting this friend. Otherwise, who knows, right? Yeah. Well, it's cool that you saw the video games industry that way, like in those terms. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, and, that's was basically true. I mean, the industry was creating itself, so. Yeah, and, and to be honest, as a woman. Sure. I felt that way, yeah. which is why I do take it personally when I hear things about, you know, the industry's hostile to women and things mm. like that. I'm like, well, like, holy crap, it was my place of opportunity. It mm. was my refuge from feeling like I didn't have opportunity as a woman. Right. And so not only am I very defensive about what the industry has done for you, the industry, right? right? And also, you know, and I've always said, I can only speak to my own experience as a woman, but, you know, I have not experienced that. Mm-hmm. I've only really experienced opportunity. You know, I would love to see more women in the industry. And actually, that's my biggest frustration out of all of that recent, you know, kind of drama and controversy was that it was, you know... Uh, were people scared, getting scared off, young women getting scared off in the industry because the message they got in the mainstream media yeah. was it is an industry that is hostile to women, which has not been my experience, which doesn't yeah. negate anybody else's, right? But then I started 
not only anecdotally, but even like personally hearing that from young women going, well, I hear it's not for me. I hear it's a hostile place. I hear it's misogynistic. And I'm like, holy crap, why are we discouraging Mm -hmm. young women from joining? Like, isn't that a self-fulfilling prophecy here? Yeah. And then for me personally, you know, almost 30 years on to go like, if that had happened to me, if -hmm. that's the message I got. Because that actually sort of was the message you got just about a different industry. Yeah. So... I was discouraged, you know, implicitly yeah. from doing the thing that I thought was my passion. Yeah. And if that happened to somebody else about the video game industry, because of, you know, I don't know, because of misinformation or, you know, and again, I'm not trying to invalidate anybody's sure. experience. I just mean that it's like it gets, everything just gets, it's, it's such an echo chamber and it gets so, you know, everything yeah. gets so extreme and then and, and and you know you've got media that wants to exploit the most provocative message yeah um the most sensational message rather than kind of look at anything in a nuanced way that you know it was clearly getting out there that it's like you know not for women yeah and it's like well that's so not true well i mean the best Nor should it be yeah you know? i mean the best you can do is just tell people about and be your, visible you know right? your experience and like how how the video games made a great deal of difference for you and how it yeah. worked for you. And I have, and I feel like I got a little blowback for doing that, but, you know, I can only speak to my experience as yeah. well. Yeah, While not invalidating anybody else's. But, so yeah, it's just kind of fascinating how, like, you know, we were saying the other day that's like that, kind of the old saying about luck being where preparation meets opportunity, and it's like, holy shit, if that isn't true, you know? Right. And that's why it's so important to just be be out there and be present um, and and make sure that you're doing what you love so that when lightning strikes, you're ready, mm-hmm. you know, which obviously sounds very quaint and prosaic or whatever, but it's true, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so the irony was it's sort of like that work, much as it didn't get published, but it allowed me to get my foot in the door. Yeah, uh, so tell me about that. Arts. How did that happen? Well, so I gathered up that work, realized mm-hmm. that not only, first of all, you know, just from a family perspective, um, you know, I was now raising my niece and nephew with my sister. Okay. She was no longer married. And so they were like my kids. Yeah. And we were trying to keep them in our neighborhood, in their uh-huh. school districts, you know, not in a not cheap area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really needed more money. And yeah. so sort of like, you know, again, sometimes the best decisions in your life are driven by necessity. Um uh, which galvanizes you. And um, so I thought, you know what, maybe I'm not going to push on this film thing anymore because I've got my frustrations about that. I'm going to take this, going to take it to Electronic Arts and go, can I have a job? Mm. It was 1991, beginning of 1991. Yeah. And I got brought on as a junior artist animator, mm-hmm. um, working on Bart's Till 4. Oh, cool. Which never came out. No. So two years of <laughs> a couple of games. Of, two years of working on stuff that never came out. You spent two career. years on Bar Sale Four. Or are you no. adding this all well, together? I'm adding it all together. Okay, okay. Oh my. Uh, what was Bar Sale Four like? I, I love the Bar Sale Bar Sale series. So. Yeah, I mean, it was a little misguided. I think uh, we did a lot of really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. 
but it wasn't a very cohesive design. Um, okay. And was it breaking out from the standard thing that they had done for? I mean, they were they were improving it, but three was still not exactly. No, I mean, and, and I think in a way that four was trying to be all things to everybody, and it wasn't happening in a way that was very coherent. And from my perspective, I mean, part of the problem was that all the programming was being done in most of the programming was being done in Texas, oh, okay. I think, or Oklahoma, or something like that, and so. That made it hard for us to get our act together. The art and the animation was being done on site, electronic arts uh, in the Bay Area. But we had sort of side view, like kind of like, oh, you would enter a space and it's sort of like almost like a, you know, Final Fantasy Japanese RPG kind of thing. You okay. Know? So they were, they were trying to move to a completely different way of playing the game. Well, I mean, it was still like, you know... There was attack moves and things like that. There's two different rows doing attacks and whatever. Exactly. I mean, if I recall, I mean, again, this is a long time ago, but like, so we did tons of side view animals. I mean, we did front, back, side, side, three quarters of all these characters. So I have pages and pages and pages of like all these little characters and dwarves and goblins and barmaids and, Mm -hmm. um, and then. So we had these painted backgrounds that were behind all of that. And then there was a top-down kind of perspective town that you would go in. Mm-hmm. But the art style of that didn't match the art style of the side view stuff. And then there was a first, like a point of view, first-person point of view, like, you know, hedge maze kind of stuff. Yep. And um, which the art style didn't match the other two things. And so yep. it just had, it just... Yeah, it wasn't very coherent. I know why it got killed. Um, okay. <laughs> but but all these things are an incredible learning experience, you know? And, I mean, you can't walk away from that feeling like throwing your hands up and being discouraged and saying you want to quit. You want to... You have to uh, just bank the experience, right? I mean, right. That's, that's, that's good stuff, learning how to do all of this. Um, the next thing I did was work on just some interstitial art for Desert Strike on the Genesis. Mm-hmm. And that was the first thing I actually had published then was just right. that. And I I can't claim much credit for that game. The other people have been on it for quite a while. But I did like all the little intermediate screens. And so that was the first thing, kind of learning to, to do art on a, a console. Right. Uh, I mean, obviously the Atari was that, but I mean on one of the newer, the newer consoles. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, and then I had uh, gotten to know and be friends with a guy named Michael Kasaka at Electronic Arts, who was a designer there. He was also instrumental, I think, in the EA Sports Network, EASN at the time, mm-hmm. um, before it became EA Sports. Uh, and he was part of uh, another group um, who was embarking on some new stuff, and he wanted me to join him as a lead artist on his project, um, which was the Michael Jordan platform game. Okay. So the producer of the group had two ideas at the time to take all the sports stars that we had relationships with and go, well, we'd like to move them into other genres. And so we had mm-hmm. two ideas. One was uh, Shaq Fu, okay. Shaq fighting game, yeah. and the other one was Michael Jordan platform game. Okay. So I was on the Michael Jordan platform game, um, and you know, not long after I started, Michael Kasaka like decided he he left um, and made me the lead designer on it. Mm-hmm. So. Wow. So this was like a couple of years into my time at EA, and he's like, all right, you know, kind of, you know, him and the producer sort of handed me the reins. And again, it's, I didn't know if I was prepared, but you don't say no, you yeah. know. Were there other female lead designers at EA that you knew of? Not off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. 
but that might be unfair because I mean it's like we were all kind of on different floors and stuff and and I don't think so there were women leads in the other disciplines but in design I wasn't as aware of that and again I I could be wrong but certainly wasn't very not in my present reality you know what I mean it was kind of like it was mostly men yeah Um, but previously you've been an artist had you expressed that you wanted to get into design or like how did that or was there just there were only so many people or like how did it happen I think interestingly I because I had to do all the design on that Atari game right so that was actually my little boot camp okay right just by necessity and then when I was doing all that art for Bard's Tale and Desert Strike um, I think I mean, I was pretty vocal about game design. Yeah, sure. And I think Michael picked up on that. Okay. And we would talk about game design. So that even when he brought me onto the project to be uh, the lead artist, it, we were already kind of working on the game design together. Okay. So you just were taking on a little more of what you were already doing. Yeah, I think that it wasn't like a weird 180, right? Yeah. I was already kind of like trending that way. Um, so, you know, again, it was a... You know, not just side scrolling now, we could scroll up and down too, mm-hmm. but like, you know, it was a scrolling action adventure game, platform yep. game, with a very weird premise, and which one which we just sort of had to embrace. You know, again, like, who's that game for? Is that for kids? Is it for adults? Is it for everybody? You know, mm-hmm. um, and then right when we started, we were working on it, that's when, you know, he had his personal crisis. I think his dad got killed and he quit basketball mm-hmm. and went into baseball and we're oh, like yeah, yeah, oh good timing <laughs> so um it was it was a rocky time and so it's interesting is we i mean we made a game that i'm very proud of it was actually a very good you know platform side scrolling or mm-hmm. platform game um with just such a weird premise that uh it got a weird reception which is understandable but yeah. a lot of the reviews would say like you know I didn't expect to like this game, and it's you know one of the best platformers I've played. Or you know if you can get past the weird concept, you know. <laughs> what which, was your? I mean, you, to make a good game, like how did that? Do you think you had good instincts, or did you have a certain design process that helped that happen, or like? Um, was there certain? I think the process was, you know, humility, right? Mm-hmm. Which is all right. Well, if I'm going to do this, and the same thing I did on the the Atari game is that I'm going to look at all games in that genre, I'm going to play them, I'm going to deconstruct them, break them down, and so I, I can see what they're doing and then I can do it. Okay. Um, and I did, so I did the same thing on the Michael Jordan game, is, you know, I just played, this was for the Super Nintendo, so I played other games that were doing this at the time and thought about how they were doing it. Um, and then, you know, we, we, it was a very small team, but we just took the opportunity to go, all right, weird concept, can't do anything about that. How can we use this as a vehicle to do some like innovative stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, at the very least, learn from having done that and then potentially make a game that actually can stand on its technological merits and, and feel groundbreaking even despite the weird concept. And so uh, all the animation was rotoscoped. Um, which, I mean, Prince of Persia had done it, yep. but that was about it at the time. I mean, and so we got a Michael Jordan lookalike and had them do all of the, the moves and videoed it and rotoscoped them all. Uh, I used primitive 3D tools like Swivel 3D and Super 3D to, to do a whole bunch of anything I could do 
as a 3D object and then render out as sprites. Right. So all the pickups were 3D, and then I'd spin them and, and, and render it out and bring them in. You know, different enemies were brought in as 3D objects. So they looked cool in the game. The backgrounds... Um, we didn't succeed throughout on this, but we, even though it was made out of tiles, we would paint it first, like either with with markers or paints, mm-hmm. and then scan that in, and then break it into tiles, and then touch them up, so that it would have this kind of painterly experience, uh, look, right. kind of experience to it. Um, we did play with a bunch of stuff with the the V blank, I think, um, on the. Um, on the SNES so that we could get kind of 3D effects going on. Uh, we actually did some primitive um, data streaming, which is obviously the hallmark of doing things like, you know, uh, like Naughty Dog's games. Right. Um, we did it and ended up doing it in Soul Reaver in those games. Uh, that idea that, you know, you don't stop for loading events. It's just everything's getting loaded in the background. We actually did this on this game because we only had 16, no, eight pallets, eight pallets, I think. And then so, I don't remember remembering right, but... We would dump half of them, you know, so if you were like had a scrolling level like that, we were like just constantly dumping and loading pallets based on when they were off screen so that the overall effect was a lot more color yeah. than you would get, you know, if you just use those same pallets the whole way through. Let me ask you something. Um, so over your career, generally speaking, you made action adventure games. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Was that template set like is that what you wanted to make during this period or was it this template set like this is just ended up being the game that you were working on and you you know you grew good at and you liked it and so that just kept going or like like if could you have is there like an alternate path for you that like if you had somehow ended up working on an rpg or mm-hmm. an adventure game or whatever like a classic adventure game like you I would suppose. have had a very different career yeah and i mean i suppose there is i think probably within limits would i have ended up with a career in sports games or racing games probably not you know mm-hmm. but like is there something about the action adventure format that like really appealed to you like, yeah it's the stuff i was playing Okay. Right. I mean, my favorite game on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred when I was a kid was Adventure. I played it over and over and over. Okay. I mean, there was there wasn't that much that was replayable about it, but you know, I just was completely immersed in that game and so amazed by it. Um, so it was already my chosen genre. I suppose I could have ended up in RPGs or something that was a little bit more adventure based because it, it's all in that same family. But. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just interesting to hear me talk to hear me hear about like. Things from this Michael Jordan game yeah. that kind of were already laid, you know laying the foundations for stuff that you would do later, you know, or be involved with later, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's funny, and actually, the fact that the the game that I stumbled onto for the Atari that for the uh, the Electrocop game, sure, because that could have been anything, right? It could have been anything, and it probably set my course, yeah. right? Because it then, not, hey, look, it, it defined the games that I needed to study, but those are the games I was already playing anyway. Yeah, so it. Maybe it was just serendipitous um, that I didn't have to make something that wasn't my taste initially. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, obviously you start developing a wheelhouse and you kind of like, you you know... I mean, if somebody wanted me to make a FIFA game now, I mean, it would be a terrible game. I don't nice. know. I mean, but I would probably do exactly what I did when I was younger, which is like, well, let me learn everything I can about sure, that. Yeah. So that It'd I be kind of like starting over in a lot of ways. Kind of, right? Yeah. And so... In small steps, that's kind of how your career tends to take you, yeah. right? It's sort of like, well, I have an expertise in that. It's hard to t- separate the thing between like, okay, you get good at something and you like being good at that thing and that right. makes you better at it and then you right. like that more. and like Right, so you, you kind of build up a passion for it. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, no, everything, everything sort of followed, followed from there. Um, so I made the Michael Jordan game. I think that came out in 94. Mm-hmm. And then the group I was in uh, at EA was then uh, anointed, I will say, with uh, sarcastic quotes around it, to do um, arcade and location-based entertainment. Like, they wanted to get into that business, which was really ill-considered. But what, I don't know what that is. I mean, arcade games. And so location-based okay. entertainment, meaning that it's like sort of like... an arcade cabinet? Yeah, but it's like there were ones too where you would like get in a whole cockpits and stuff. Everybody's oh, trying to figure you out like those Battletech games. Sure, like, okay. exactly. So they were trying to figure out everything from making arcade games, you know, in a cabinet to uh, full-on location-based entertainment. It used to be a thing people talked yeah. about because it was that period of time where the, you know, it was like PlayStation One was also happening. Like downstairs, they were starting to make PlayStation One games, yeah. and so this was a little fork in the road where it's like, well, are we going to make PlayStation One? And learn that, or are we going to go whole hog and like take this department and have them work on arcade stuff? Because of course now the arcade games are starting to look like, uh, I mean the the home games are starting to look like the arcade games, yeah. and so everybody's starting to think, well, how do we create a a ride like experience? Right, we're going to do something even better to get them to come into arcades. So. Yeah, something whether it was a controller or the yeah. fact that you know, like so this group then was supposed to be figuring this out. They hired a bunch of. Uh, uh, ex um, actually arcade Atari guys things like probably people that Mark knows um, to figure this out um, and we're supposedly going to be kind of you know hugely funded and and mm-hmm. then we were all very skeptical about it but we worked on the games anyway and then it evaporated in no time yeah. um, and there was really nowhere else to go inside the company for all these like, kind of experienced people and so we all kind of scattered to the winds and that's when I went to Crystal Dynamics okay in 2000, no, wait, 1995. And, um... Did you know someone there, or you just... Yeah, there were some XEA people there. Oh, okay, right. Um, that had already left. Mm-hmm. And so, and actually, Mark was there. Mark Cerny oh. was there okay. at the time. Um, and, like, we just barely crossed paths. Like, he okay. just left and I just came. Right. So, um, but it's interesting, and a lot of the the the... the Beginnings of Naughty Dog were there as well. Okay. Um, small industry, you know. Sure. But, uh, and so uh, I was brought on there as the design manager, which I agreed to do for a year, but then said after that I wanted to, you know, have my own project. Um, design manager means you manage So, like, the for designers? instance, Mark Cerny was the programming manager, okay. right? So that each discipline had a person who was overseeing the whole department, the whole discipline. And was reviewing, contributing to, or firefighting on whatever. But it was like, uh, you still had a person, a craftsperson in that role so that they could, like, so I would I would review design documents, right. which we, again, sort of, <laughs> this ill-conceived idea that you write a whole document and then make the game. Right. I would review those things. Um, that sounds like a fairly senior role. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, so that was 95, so that was four years after I... Joined the industry, yeah, yeah, um, and it was sort of like there was a fork in the road there too, where I was actually initially interviewed to be the lead designer on Gex Two. Okay, uh, um, but the guy who was currently the design manager role decided that he wanted to be the lead on Gex Two, therefore that space was vacated. Right. Okay, uh, so I did that for a year, but 
really. And I looked, I, you know, I kind of, you know, I, I can't take credit for any of them, but I oversaw in terms of just kind of keeping an eye on uh, several projects that were going on at the time. But the main thing was, I mean, basically my first day there, the, the head of the studio said, okay, I need you to look at this Blood Omen Legacy of Kane game. Okay. Um, and kind of threw me at it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was literally, the design document was four inches thick. <laughs> In this big heavy binder. Have they started developing it yet? Yeah, they've been on it for years. For years. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but so much of their focus had gone into cinematic content. They were really into the story, and they'd done a lot of cinematic work, and that was you know very very far along. But the game itself wasn't very far along. Okay. At this point, that was like a top down yeah action game basically. Yeah, top yeah. down. I forgot the term for that. It's not isometric. It's that top-down sort of slightly flattened. Two and a half D or whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever yeah. yeah. Zelda-ish, you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was being developed by Silicon Knights, uh, but they didn't have a lot of designers there. Mm-hmm. And they might have only had one guy at the time who's officially, that was his title. It was a lot of art. Um, and so it was actually supposed to be alpha at this point, but it was pretty far from it. And so it was kind of like... It was a tough trouble project. Yeah, but that, I mean, you know, it wasn't presented to me that way. It was uh-huh. more like, you know, let's make sure, let's let's figure out where we are with this thing and okay. let's get it back on the rails if it needs to be back on the rails. And and so part of my job then as the design manager was, you know, to talk to Silicon Knights and work with those guys to be able to break down, you know, what was needed on the game, what was working, what wasn't working, how we were going to get to the point, and kind of, and get to the same no, page. Wait, wait okay, yeah. so you worked for Crystal Dynamics. Were they publishing the game in Silicon Knights? They were Knights? a publisher as well as a developer at the time. And so Silicon Knights was... The developer. Was the developer, yeah, okay. Right, so this is before Crystal was purchased by Eidos. Okay, all right. Um, and so, you know, I talked to Dennis Dyack at Silicon Knights and, and, you know, agreed, we agreed that... Really, what we wanted was sort of a dark Zelda, right? Uh-huh. Uh, telling this vampire Zelda, and so we we're like, "All right, well, let's let's reconstruct the game from that viewpoint." Uh-huh. We actually ended up putting like ten of our designers on it, and mm-hmm. a bunch of them were actually working up there on site for months. Oh, okay, so we really kind of had it's like to, a co-development. Yeah, it sort of turned into a co-development. Um, and really, I mean, somebody should have seen that coming long before I was there because they really didn't have enough design resources up there, you mm-hmm. know. And so, were they like a programming house kind of like was that their, their strength? Programmers and artists yeah. and animators and, and and that's like I mean, some of the people wore multiple hats, right? But yeah. um, the design was just the thing that seemed like it had gotten the least attention. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and look, and not in concept because again, four inch document, right? <laughs> Very thorough, but in terms of like being on the screen, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily there yet. Yeah. So we redesigned the thing with them, and then got you know did a lot of um, getting in the same room and working through it. Um, and so that was that was kind of a cool experience because it was very much like I mean you know hurry hurry let's see, we got to get this done and and um, and I hadn't been able to I mean probably my favorite game of all time is Link to the Past, and so okay. to be able to go. Okay, I know what that is. Now let's just make this dark vampire version of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, as much as we could. Yeah. And so that was something different than what I had done, so that was fun. And then the year was up, and then that I agreed to be the design manager, and, and so uh, uh, we started a new project um, that was codenamed Shifter. Uh, that was supposed to be a, an original project for the PlayStation 1. 
in the Dreamcast. Um, and uh, it was about a kind of steampunk weird world with the fallen angel who was a reaper of souls mm-hmm. um, uh, fighting against you know the his former masters mm-hmm. so but it wasn't a Kane sequel okay right um, it was going to be an original game and so we were working on this idea and people really liked it but they were like we would love this can you turn this into a sequel to Legacy of Kane somehow okay. and I'm like mm, they're kind of d- different things um but once we kind of got over that, you know, creative gut punch of going, take the thing that you've, you know, crafted and love and, you know, bend it around this other thing. It's sort of like, well, at that point, you can either say, no, thank you and walk away or you can go, you can't just be bitter about it. You yeah. have to go, I'm going to embrace that thing yep. and, and make the best game I can. And that became Soul Reaver. Okay. And so. What um, did you have to change to make that work? Well, the core idea of having this sort of fallen character, sort of tragic character who could shift between the material plane and the spectral plane um, and was being kind of hunted by former brothers and and kind of railing against uh, former masters. I mean, that's all kind of implicit. We just sort of took those ideas and reframed them around... Legacy of Cain, and realizing, well, it's like in terms of a, for, a former master, there's Cain, right? Yeah. In terms of this sort of larger antagonism, this idea of the, the Elder God and this demiurge uh, deity, um, this false god ruling the world and sucking the life out of it. We kept the planar stuff in. Um, we had all the former vampire brethren, you know, kind of in the role of, you know, the the... the the characters that were both hounding you and that you had to take down. Um, right. So we just kind of... I mean, it was really the story aspect. We were trying to make something that had kind of a Paradise Lost vibe, almost a steampunky Paradise Lost vibe mm. to it. And so the narrative context had to go away, but the mechanical aspect we kept. you know. Yeah. And so we just needed to just embrace the idea of going, well, look, I'm like, let's take the ending of the last game... Yep. Where you actually had this binary choice, you're going to save the world or damn it, and go, well, let's assume he damned it. Right. Because <laughs> otherwise, okay. um, there's not much of a game. And let's jump forward a thousand years or whatever. Okay. And say, what if? What what, what would have happened? Mm-hmm. And a lot can happen in a thousand years, so. <laughs> exactly. You know, and so for anybody that, you know, wanted to say, you know, another top down, you know, the uh, Zelda ish rolling game with Kane probably was disappointed. They were like, What the hell is this? Yeah. 3D so this was, third right. person. So this was a 3D game. 3D third person. So that's a, that's a pretty big change. That's a pretty important change. Like from just a game yeah. you know, gameplay point of view. Yeah, and it was a big deal. I mean, look, so Crystal Dynamics had been doing Gex, right? Mm. So the core of our engine, there's probably still the word Gex inside the Lark <laughs> the Tomb Raider engine, right? Like the core of the engine that we built was built on the bones of Gex, which is third person. Right. Um, you know, all the things that you're trying to solve, third person camera and controls and all that stuff. Uh, and so that, interestingly, was sort of the genesis of everything that's come after, I think. Okay. Because yeah. from that point on, I haven't really strayed from making third person action adventure games. games. Yeah. And interestingly, the people that were making Gex. One of them was Evan Wells, who's one mm. of the presidents of, of, of Naughty Dog. And mm-hmm. so, you know, a lot of... And Bruce Straley was making Gex, who's one of the co-directors. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of that 
what Naughty Dog is, I mean, not to take any credit away from Jason and Andy, but like a lot of the people that worked on those games, including Mark Cerny, came out of out of Crystal Dynamics. Mm-hmm. It was sort of this little crucible of making, you know, AAA game designers, I guess. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I made that thing. And I'm actually really proud of that game still. I mean, if somebody said... For all its flaws and it's the time and everything, what is what is the best game you've designed? I would probably say Soul Reaver. Really? What's so talk about that then? What's the part that you're really, you're really proud of? Um, it was probably the purest, except for the fact that, of course, we had to try to bend it around this other franchise, right? right. Um, some of that was sort of superficial. So, other than that, I felt like it was the purest uh, expression of story and gameplay being the same thing. Okay. Meaning that uh, we wanted, if I can kind of say this in as succinct a way as possible, we wanted your health mechanic, for instance, Uh to be the thing that you are, right? Which is you are this fallen angel in vampire form, basically, Mm -hmm. who now fundamentally resides in the spirit realm. Uh Your vampire abilities... Your blood sucking is now transformed into soul sucking. Right. That is the way that you recover your health. Yeah. Right? Okay. Um, the health system, we kind of described it as a sort of big Mario, little Mario system in the sense that if you could find a portal, you could transport yourself into the material realm. Mm-hmm. Uh if you lost your health, you would lose your corporeal body and right. get shunted back down into the, the spirit spirit. realm. So okay. big Mario, little Mario, uh-huh. don't get killed in the spirit realm because you'll get set back, you know. Okay. Um, and then you had to find souls and suck them in to get your health back. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew that because it was a 3D platformer, we wanted something that would take the edge off the difficulty of precision jumping in these okay. early 3D games. Um so the character is, you know, he was a vampire that evolved wings, but then Kane, his master, broke them. So now he has these sort of tattered remnants of wings that will allow him to glide. Okay. But so he th- can't fly. But he, he can't can, fly. But so, so mechanically, float. we wanted to say, how do we, how do we have a jump mechanic that actually enables sort of three D platforming and kind of is a little generous to the player? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's exact. But the reason of it, it's like we, nothing was sort of tacked on, and and some of the ideas came from story. They were like, well, why don't we make him glide? Some of it was like, we really need to take the edge off the jumping. So that's great because he has broken wings. Um, the splitting back and forth between the planes, the fact that it wasn't just sort of a narrative device, it was the fact that because stuff moved, mm-hmm. everything would get twisted and kind of um, expressionistic in the spectral realm. And that could be used to solve puzzles. And that mechanically there were some things you could logically do in the physical realm because they were physical that you couldn't do in the spirit realm. But also because the environment transformed, there could be jumps that you couldn't make in one than you could make in the other, mm. things like that. Okay. So the entire game, you could be in either one of the, yeah. the planes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then I'm also proud of it because we did two incredibly ballsy things. Does that mean you had to essentially make every level twice? No, and this is part of the ballsy thing, okay. right? Is that part of our original pitch, and everybody thought we were crazy, and we were, but it worked out all right, um, was A, we wanted to stream all the data. 
Okay. And it was the same time that Naughty Dog was figuring that out with Crash Bandicoot. Um, so we were kind of like neck and neck with feeling like that was a problem to be solved. We actually didn't get it working, like the textures packing and stuff like that, almost just before we shipped, because it was that challenging, right? Mm-hmm. But we once you started playing, it was this big interconnected sprawling world, and we didn't want to have a loading event. Mm-hmm. It was really hard to do. The other one was, we've got two worlds. This is inherent to our story and our game. Yeah. That is not a feature that you can go, let's yeah. take that off, right? How are you going to do that? And this is sort of an interesting story, which is not to toot my horn, but I think is sort of interesting to designers who may not be technical, is you shouldn't you shouldn't um, underestimate the value of not being technical, meaning that you might have a problem, be able to solve a problem in a way that other people wouldn't consider because it's almost too simple, sure. right? And so, we have this problem, of course. Yes, world building. It's, it's time-consuming. It's expensive. You do that twice, you've mm-hmm. got a problem. Also, well, we have to actually... We don't want to, like, make the screen go black and come up and now have a different level. Yeah. We want to actually watch the world morph. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? So everybody's saying, well, that's impossible. You're like, you can't do that, right? And so I'm like, I kind of looked at it and said, okay, we're building all the levels in 3DS Max. Mm-hmm. You know... The vertices have a couple of pieces of information on them. Right. They have an XYZ and they have an RGB. Yeah. We move the XYZ. Mm-hmm. We reset the RGB to something eerie and bluish green. Because uh-huh. that was the lighting essentially. It was all baked, right? Right. So you... <coughs> Go ahead. And then so you say... And then use the time slider... In the Maya animation, to go frame zero is the material world, and frame one is the spectral world. Okay. So then you go frame one, and you start moving verts, and you change the color values for the lighting of the verts, and then you can actually just interpolate between them. So you get a pillar that then kind of mm-hmm. melts because its vertices are moving. So moving from one to the other was like literally a giant animation. It was a giant level. animation. It was a it was a two frame animation basically sure. with as much interpolated frames as you wanted. It was completely linear, of yeah. course, right? Um you couldn't do anything. There wasn't like a path that you could have those vertices take. They were going to go from they point A to point B. Just as a straight line, yeah. But uh, you know, um we but could you ease, have lots of We could ease in and ease out because again sort of like but yes, we could make that so when you switch planes you basically saw the world twist yeah. and move. Depending on how you arrange those things, I can imagine artists that must have been really interesting because then the artists for now had this sort of new tool that they'd probably never done before new trick they'd never really tried before, yeah. right? Because I assume like certain things you could you know move the base of a pillar more and maybe move the top less yeah. and then it like right. you know now it's like angled in this weird way right yeah absolutely so some things could get weird and lumpy I mean you could have very rational standing pillars in the physical world that then kind of cant and lean toward each other and now I've got a much smaller gap to jump than I would have otherwise you could have pillars that change in height so. You know, I was standing on two pillars that are equal height, and I can't reach a goal above. So now it's a problem-solving part of the gameplay. Mm-hmm. I can get on this one, you know, and then jump to here because I can. I could, you know, jump to this 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 other low pillar, switch to the spirit realm, and now I ride the the low pillar to a high point, and then I can jump somewhere else. So you have to be able to observe the world and switch back and forth and go, aha! I see how to solve this puzzle. Hmm. So again, the fact that the narrative and the gameplay were the same thing. Yeah. Um, but it's just an example. And look, I, I'm sure I giving myself too credit in my too much credit in my memory. But like, I do remember sitting in kind of pitch meetings where programmers were going, "You're crazy. You're never able to do that." Like, mm-hmm. 
have a shift between these two worlds. And then we had this little scrappy team, and we were like, what if we did this? Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, yeah, that would work. Yeah. It's like, did you see, show it? In, like, did you like, did you take a couple of people and just like do it in one level? Is that how you did it? Or you just needed to come up have, with like the. I think it's probably the, basic the concept. first thing we did, because of course, initially the pitch was purely conceptual. We're going to shift between two planes of existence. Yeah. And, and so we sort of like, when we were told it was impossible, we were like, I think we looked at it and said, well, what do we have to work with? Right. right? And uh, just played with it in Max and, and went, oh, okay, well, this seems pretty simple, actually. Right. But the fact that somebody who was looking at the pro- the problem in a much more, in, you know, a much more intelligent, complicated, technological way wouldn't have been able to see that solution immediately that, you know, and that's what I mean, designers shouldn't underestimate their ability to go, what if? Yeah. Right? Sometimes yeah. the best ideas come from somewhere unexpected. Hmm. Well, computers are so so flexible. There's like so much more you can do with them than the normal patterns you use them with, right? right. Like you're kind of tweaking the system in this mm-hmm. way that you know this, it was was possible, but normally there'd be no reason for someone to do that, right? So yeah, exactly, right. That I mean, yeah, there was no other reason for anybody else to do that in 3ds Max. I mean, yeah, it, it purely was suited to you know to our project. Yeah, but we were able to kind of co-opt that feature and, and do something with it. So. Yeah. And that stuff's incredibly satisfying when you figure that sure. out because yeah. you feel so clever, you know. Yeah. Um, cool. So that's why I'm kind of proud of that one. And we were pushing the envelope in all kinds of ways and doing it. I mean, I feel like it is the purest game design in a way because it's form followed function and function followed form, you know. Mm-hmm. So then we made a couple more of those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Was um, it, uh, you know, you just were generally happy with how they were made, so you just had to make, make more of them, basically, well, and improve it, incrementally, basically. Every single one was a challenge, because when we went to go do Soul Reaver 2, mm-hmm. this was on the verge, we were on the cusp of PlayStation 2. Yep. And initially, we were supposed to do another PlayStation 1 game. Uh-huh. And I think we were feeling like, and other people in the studio were getting to work on the PlayStation 2, and we were jealous, and so we actually sort of borrowed a couple of PlayStation 2 dev kits out of the mm. closet. <laughs> and I think within a couple of weeks, we had actually ported our engine onto PlayStation 2. Not well, but well enough for the when Phil Harrison came by and we showed him Soul Reaver 2 on the PlayStation 2, it was like a little bit of a rubber stamp, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so... And it was, it was it supposed to be a PlayStation 1 game, and now it just no longer was? Yeah, because we, yeah. Wanted, we just wanted a new challenge. We yeah, felt yeah, like sure. we'd sort of pushed that hardware as hard to be pushed... You want to be on the new cutting-edge thing. And look, from a financial perspective, it might have been smarter to make a PlayStation 1 sequel. Mm. I don't know, but we weren't excited by that. And so we kind of... We kind of were a little wily and just said, well, let's just show them it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we don't have to get permission. We can ask for forgiveness and uh, a green light. Um, And so that was... That was Soul River 2, and then we made a... Another one called Legacy of Cain Defiance, mm-hmm. um, where we had two playable characters, Cain and Raziel. But it's always hard once you get farther into. So that was I was at Crystal for eight years. You know, you start yeah. feeling. I mean, pretty much the whole time I was working on, you know, Cain games in one form or another, mm-hmm. and uh, the next thing that was going to be up, we realized, you know, and I and and Evan Wells had already gone to. Uh, Naughty Dog, and he had called me the spring, probably like oh, it was March, 
April mm-hmm. of 2003 going, hey, we're going to be making a Jack 3. We'd like you to come down and be the game director. And I'm like, dude, I'm like, I'm up to my eyeballs in this Legacy of Kane game I have to finish by the end of the year. And I'm not going to leave in the middle. You know, yep. it's not good. And uh, and he's like, well, okay, well, let's just keep talking. And then the next time he was up, we talked. And I was kind of intrigued. And one time when I was down there recording dialogue for the Kane game, he's like, just come by the studio. <laughs> so I came and met everybody and talked about it. I was like, holy shit, I got to do this. Yeah. And so, Why were you so? I mean, was there a was there something else you could have done at Crystal that would have been interesting? Well, here's the just... irony, right? Okay, I don't tell this story much, but um, the next thing that was coming up, and this is after Evan started talking to me, was Tomb Raider. They were going to take it away from Core and give it to Crystal because of our track record okay. with third person action adventure stuff. And you knew that. I found that out after I'd already started talking to Evan. Mm. I hadn't said yes to Evan. I was because I was still like, dude, I have a game to finish. It's going to be out in November. I mean, we can talk then. And he's like, uh, you know, well, then we'll really only have a year to make the game, you know, because mm-hmm. it was like times are wasting, right? Yeah. Um, and then when that happened, when the the Tomb Raider thing came up, I'm like, okay, well, I kind of, I I kind of need to know, am I going to get a shot at that? Do I get to direct that I've been a director now for this many years at Crystal um, because maybe I would go that route oh you're going to direct Tomb Raider that's what you're saying that's what I'm saying once I found out that Crystal was going to get it I was like all right, so I've been a director here basically the whole time eight years I mean it seems like Tomb Raider would be a pretty good fit for you so Mm, you'd think right but I think here's the problem the, the, the franchise had been so mishandled for a while yep. and it had sort of lost its way and it was a big important asset Yeah, this is after the IDOS acquisition of course right mm-hmm. uh, that the company felt like they needed they needed to bring somebody in a heavy hitter that could be a sure bet okay. as a director um, and they decided they wanted to bring in Doug Church to direct the thing and I was like, okay, well then, you just made my decision for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Well, so if I'm not going to get a shot at it, did you tell them explicitly, like if you, you know, if you don't give me this, I'm going to probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't stand on a soapbox and yell it, but like, you know, I talked to my bosses about it. That yeah. it's sort of like I wanted a shot at that, and then when it was clear that they were trying to actually hire somebody from outside to come in that they thought would be a no-brainer. Yeah. And look, nobody's ever a no-brainer, right? Right. I mean, this is the problem. Um, that's where I had no idea Doug Church ever worked on a Tomb Raider game. He wasn't, I mean, it was the very first ones. It was Tomb Raider, oh, what was that? Legends? Yeah, Tomb Raider Legends, maybe? I don't know. Nope. I can't remember. There's been a lot now, right? <laughs> but anyway, it was the first, it was the reboot. Uh-huh. He was on it for which, a which while, but he was there? gone by, the, he was only for maybe the first part of production, and then he moved on. Okay. Um, so that w- didn't work out after all then no so it didn't work out could have been a very different and I wasn't there so I can't comment on the specifics yeah. of it but it didn't work out so I was like okay well you've made my decision for yeah. me so when I say I was intrigued it was like a small studio there's probably maybe 30 35 people right. at Naughty Dog at the time very smart people some of whom I had worked with before doing very exciting things 
in Santa Monica with an office on the promenade. It was just kind of like... There's a lot of nice things there. Yeah. Now, what if they hadn't made your decision for you? What, would, what would your decision have been? I don't know. Because here's the thing. My entire family is in the Bay Area. Yeah. So I was leaving That's, everybody yeah. to move to Los Angeles, which was hard, yeah. right? Um, and... And to go from like, look, I'm exhausted. I was right on the brink of going great. I get to, I'm at my sabbatical time basically mm. for Crystal Dynamics, yeah. and yet I pulled up stakes and, and started to clock over. Right again, yeah. And not only something, but to do Jack three in one year, mm-hmm. right? So because I was to join in mm-hmm. November of 2003, and then it had to be out in November of 2004. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. Um, but the reason it was. Intriguing also was Evan confided in me that Jason and Andy were going to be leaving mm-hmm. um, and that they would be appointing two new co-presidents, one of whom, both of whom I knew, yeah. um, and one of whom was Evan. Uh, and that this was the last, in the Jack series, they were going to do this Jack X thing, we eventually realized, but like, and the next thing was a new IP on the PlayStation 3 yep. that I, they wanted me to be part of. I'm like, well, holy shit. Yeah. So you're not sure what you would have done. I know. But probably I, I mean, like... if somebody said, Amy, we want you to stay and yeah. we want you to direct the new Tomb Raider, I I, I might have. Yeah. Right? Um, but since that wasn't the case, I pulled up stakes. I put whatever I could fit in my car. I sort of figured, oh, I'll be, maybe I'll be down there for a year. Who knows? Maybe this doesn't work out. Yeah. Um, and just drove down and uh, did check three in one year. And there were three designers on that, me being one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the other one being Yasuhara, who uh, worked on Sonic. Um, really, really good designer. Um, were you making content for, were you able to use the old engine? And yeah. Make, just, you yeah, but you just need to make but it wasn't content. just like making more stuff. Like yeah. so, they always wanted to expand. And so the big change over Jack. I mean, you could see the difference between Jack One and Jack Two, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, it went from being a much smaller game to this sort of you know sprawling almost GTA esque yep. uh, thing. Uh, and then uh, Jack Three, they'd have been working on it a while, and, and Jason had this idea that I think it was his idea mm-hmm. to add vehicles. Okay, and so now it became sort of this open world yeah. desert that with all these dune, different dune buggy things that you could acquire and unlock. Um, and so it was still that thing where it was like there was all kinds of missions and goals, and you could go from location to location and unlock things and and and, and uh, accomplish missions and stuff like that. So you know the 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 base DNA was there, but the idea of doing an open world like desert. Mm-hmm. That was streaming in all directions uh, was not trivial, and then uh, doing vehicles that like had all the right physics and were fun to play was like not trivial and was new to the franchise. So, um, and then we also had uh, introduced all these ideas of light and dark powers. Interestingly, because it kind of <laughs> echoed the Soul River stuff mm-hmm. um, to Jack, and then we had to kind of uh, make levels around that. So that was a challenge, uh, especially with such a small team. Um, but we did that, mm-hmm. um, and then we're start. You know, had already been having meetings. You know, percolating ideas around new IP, and there were a lot of things that were getting kicked around, um, and had been even before I got there. Yeah. Um, with sort of a small uh, kind of core idea team, and yeah. then 
Um, and then started working on that in earnest once we'd finished Jack, uh, yeah. knowing that you know we were slated to. We had once we finished Jack three, we had three years to have whatever this thing was out on the PlayStation yeah. three. Um, we threw away the entire engine and rewrote it from scratch. Yeah, that's a pretty pretty good chunk of time. So. Probably wasn't. Yeah, back then, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it still didn't feel like it, you know? Sure. And, and you know, <laughs> rewrote the whole engine, rewrote the tools, rewrote, rewrote everything. Did you think you should you should have not done that? Well, Andy Gavin himself said, in hindsight, that was a dumb thing to do. Yeah. Because they had this great, uh, you know, programming language uh, goal that was sort of suspect, uh, uh, proprietary to, uh-huh. to, to Naughty Dog. and was so lean and efficient mm. um, and we kind of threw that away yeah. um, on the other hand though I mean at a certain point you have to you have to you have to start a new foundation yeah. um, and so after lots of going back and forth I mean we had ideas that were dark and post-apocalyptic we had you know and sort of so it could have been it could have been, been anything. anything right and interestingly, had ideas that I think you know. It's always like some of was you, there a like it was going to be an action adventure game though, or like it really could action be adventure in the sense that our this, bread and butter, is what t- our wheelhouse, third yeah. person action adventure, and, and Naughty Dogs as well, right? Yeah. Okay. And so that was sort of the premise. It wasn't going to be a first person shooter or anything like that. Yeah. But what genre tone type of game? was sort of up for grabs. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about that process thing, because I'm sure a lot of people will be interested in hearing like, exactly how that came together. 